Before I get started, I want to say just a few quick thank yous. Uh, first of all, Amber, thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you for sharing about what you're doing. And more than anything, thank you. Like you said, it is like standing in front of Goliath. Thank you for having the courage and the bravery just to stand there and do the work that you do. I pray that we will come alongside you and minister with you and by God's grace, um, just stand in that, in that battle. Um, I want to say a second thank you to the music team. As you may have seen, I was able to just sit for a little while today and, and worship uh, with you all, and they did a fantastic job of leading us. Um, it just helped me to be able to focus a little bit more on the sermon this morning and not have to run everywhere doing the things that I usually do. So thank you all. And thirdly, thank you, Bill, uh, for praying for me. It is something I would never want to be without, to, to have to pre- uh, preach the word without someone like Bill or like James just standing here and praying for me and praying for the message more than even for me, that God would bless the preaching of his, his word. It's a meaningful thing, so, so thank you. This morning we're going to be taking a break, as you've heard from our sermon series in Philippians. We'll coming, be coming back to that in the next uh, week. But we're taking a break to commemorate the Right to Life Sunday and to think about the value of life and the evil of abortion There are a few sermons that I could preach to you this morning that I won't be preaching. Um, First, I could preach to you a self-congratulatory sermon. I could preach to you a sermon that says, I thank you, God, that I am not like other men or that we are not like other men. We could congratulate ourselves and say, we have taken the right stance on this and aren't we so wonderful that we have done so. But I don't think that is the message that I'm called to preach this morning that we're called to hear. Or second, I could, I could preach a, a kind of call-to-action sermon. There wouldn't be anything wrong with that. I hope that we will get involved. I hope that we will be active. Um, but I think the, the sermon that God has called me to preach this morning, that God has called us to hear, whether or not I'm the man to preach it, is the why of this question. Why should we stand against abortion? Why do we support the right to life? I think it's an important question. I think it's a question that, that maybe we haven't fully thought through all of us in this issue. Right? Scripture has a lot to say about the why. Why we value life. Not just of the unborn, but as, as we say, from the womb to the tomb. The life of all people. It's not really enough for us to just say, the church is against abortion, so I'm abortion. Or, Well, well, Scripture condemns abortion, so I condemn abortion. Those are true. And yet, I think in the hard moments, whether it's a a conversation with someone, or whether you're speaking into the life of someone, whether it's you in that place of having to make a hard decision, I think we need to understand what's behind those prohibitions, what, what the why is of why we stand against abortion, right? For that young girl or that young couple who's having to make that hard decision, who's afraid maybe to come to her parents or to come to her church and, and say, you know, that, that I have conceived a child when maybe she knows that that won't be looked well on. We need something more meaningful to offer than just the word no, right? We need something more to offer. I think scripture gives us that something beautiful, to offer. So this morning we're going to be reading kind of a difficult story. We're going to be reading the story of Hagar and Ishmael. So you can turn with me in your Bibles or in your uh, bulletins to Genesis 16. 
And please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servants. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So, after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram as her husband as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Ber Lahai Roi. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that our eyes would be opened to see, our ears would be opened to hear the good and beautiful news in your word this morning that our hearts would be filled with compassion for those in need, that our, our shame and our guilt would be just lovingly um, put away by the beauty of your gospel. I pray that you would come this morning and work in our hearts, comfort us, challenge us, and move among us. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This is really, as I said, it's a difficult story to read. It's not one of the stories in Scripture that makes us proud of those who are the forefathers of our faith. Really, it's a reminder of how sin has warped and twisted even those people who we might be tempted to hold up as heroes or as examples. It's an example of the way that sin has infected every corner of human life. The passage begins by saying, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. 
If you remember earlier in the story of Abram, he had received a promise from God. Twice, really, in chapters 12 and 15, he had received this promise, not only that he would have a son, that he would have an heir, but that his children, his descendants, would be as numerous as the stars in the sky, right? He's told, number the stars in the sky if you can count them. Such shall your descendants be. And we're told that Abram had faith in this promise. He believed God. And yet even though he had that faith, in his old age, 11 years, we're told, after the original promise, Abram remained childless. And you can imagine at that time what he and Sarai were thinking. Has the promise of God failed? Did I do something wrong? Have I lost the promise? You would imagine that they would have some shame. In that culture particularly, there was a shame that was associated with not having children, like you were, you were cursed, like you were not viewed well by the gods. There was a shame surrounding it. They would have wondered, maybe, has God abandoned us? And so Sarai, of course, comes up with a plan. And it wasn't a plan that was particularly unusual in the time. It was something that we know happened somewhat regularly. She said, I know what we'll do. We'll help God along a little bit. She was too old to give birth by conventional wisdom. and She had lost hope that she would ever have a son of her own. And so she told Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. And you can hear in that statement, right? You can hear some echoes of what happened in Eden. Did God really say? Right? Did God really promise that? Did you hear him right? Did God really mean what it seemed like he meant? Maybe God's plan needs our help. Maybe, as you may have heard, maybe God helps those who help themselves. Often that phrase, God helps those who, helps themse- who help themselves, often, and I think here, it's just shorthand for saying, God won't give me what I want, so maybe I need to take it for myself. For Abram and for Sarai, I think this choice seemed so simple. They could have everything that they wanted, everything that had been promised to them, and all it would cost was the dignity and the personhood of one Egyptian servant. Maybe you've noticed already, but it's a strange thing in some ways that we refer to this. If you have a Bible with, with titles, it, it probably calls it the story of Hagar and Ishmael, or the story of Hagar, I think ours calls it the story of Sarai and Hagar. And it's strange that we call it that, because in this first section particularly, these first six verses, Hagar isn't even really a character. She's referred to more than anything else as the servant, or my servant, or in the third person. She's not even really the main character in her own story. I think the writer does this intentionally. I think the writer is doing this to show us what it felt like to be Hagar in that moment, how she was being treated and what it meant. She was looked at not as somebody with a unique personhood, not as somebody with some unique desires and hopes and dreams, but as somebody who was merely there as an extra character in someone else's story, as someone who was merely there to give Abram and Sarai what they wanted. 
And so you can imagine being Hagar in that moment. Right? You can imagine the pain that she was feeling. You can imagine how it felt to be treated in that way. And so when Sarai comes and says, now the time has come, give me the child that you have born, Hagar does not respond well. Right? We're told she, she saw her mistress with contempt. And her anger was received not as understandable, not as just, not as reasonable, but even as a crime against those who had power over her. This story is a shock to our modern sensibilities. I think that's a good thing. We are rightly uncomfortable with slavery, and this is not an example of what we might call servanthood. This is really an example of, of slavery. And those two words in, in the Hebrew are the same thing, right? You would, you would use them in, this, in the same ways. I think it's a good thing that we are uncomfortable with it. It's a, it's a good thing that we're uncomfortable with the way Hagar was treated. We are right to be shocked. We are right to be a little bit uncomfortable that the forefather of our faith, somebody who we look back to, somebody who Israelites for thousands of years after were proud to say we are children of Abraham, we are a little bit uncomfortable that he acted the way he did in Genesis 16. And yet, even though we are a little bit uncomfortable, we are shocked, I want you to put yourself in the place of those earliest hearers of this story. The story was not written down in Abram's time, right? It was written down many, many years later in the time of Moses. And so you can imagine that when they were talking about Hagar, first of all, they wouldn't have been so uncomfortable with the idea of slavery. Right? That they had more of an understanding, more of a comfort around that. It does not make it right. That does not mean um, that slavery was, was something that was um, kind of encouraged in that time. But it was something that they were used to. They would have even been used to this idea of using a slave, using a servant in this way. And more than that, I think more importantly, we are talking about Hagar, who is specifically referred to, and I think this is important, as an Egyptian slave. Now, why might that have been important 40 years after the Exodus? Right? Where had they just been? They had just been in Egypt, enslaved to the Egyptians. And so I think Moses is intentionally putting this in to say it was an Egyptian slave. Not just a slave, but an Egyptian slave. And so the Israelites hearing this, I think, might have been expecting some sort of, ha, ha, they got what they deserved. We may have been mistreated, but at least in this story, I'm ready. I'm ready to hear about how the Egyptian was in the place that we were in. I think we are shocked at what Abram did, but I think those original hearers would have been shocked at what God did. You can imagine their surprise at a God who came to Hagar in the way that he did. We are told two things about God in this chapter. We are told he is a God who hears, and we are told that he is a God who sees. In the wilderness, the angel of the Lord comes to Hagar, and he has this to say to her. He says, Behold, you are pregnant, and shall bear a son. You shall call his name 
Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. That name Ishmael translates, as may be in your Bible, as the Lord hears. The Lord comes to Hagar, somebody who had been profoundly unheard throughout her life. Someone whose complaints were received as a crime. Someone whose whose desires were considered unimportant. Somebody whose voice was simply not heard. And the Lord comes to her and he says, You shall name your child the Lord hears. It was the promise that even though in every other area of her life she may be unheard, with the Lord never once had she been unheard and never once would she be unheard. And we have this same promise today. The Lord who heard Hagar hears us today as we think about Right to Life Sunday. The voices of those crying out, the voices, as Amphra was saying, the prayers of the people, the prayers that we offer up, hoping, God, will you heal our land? Will you end this tragedy? Will you save these children? We know, even though we don't always understand how God is answering, we know we have a God who hears us every single time that we call out. Secondly, we are told that we have a God who sees. He is a God of seeing. This is actually the first name that's given to God in the Bible. This is kind of what Hagar is famous for. She is the first person to give God a name. This is something that that happens kind of over and over in Scripture. The many names of God, El Shaddai is one of the ones that that we remember frequently. But Hagar gives God the name El Roi. God who sees. After everything that had happened in her life, having been dramatically unseen by Abram and Sarah, Hagar praises God as the God who sees. And then, of course, God asks her to do something that was the furthest from what she wanted to do. He says, I see you, I I know you. I want you to go back to Sarai. <laughs> you can imagine in that moment, that was not what she wanted to hear. But the amazing thing is, she does it. She has met the God who hears. She has met the God who sees. And so she actually does what God commands. I think what we are being shown here is, if you are seen by God, if you are heard by God, you can... Make it. Right? You can deal with all of the hard things, all of the people in this world, for her and for you here, who will not hear you, who will not see you, who will mock you for the things that you believe and the things that you support. I have to imagine Amber and EJ, everybody working for this ministry, have heard those things, have heard people saying, you know, you're just a, an ignorant Christian, you're just kind of, you know, you don't support women's rights, you don't you, know, you don't get the, the times, you're, you're backwards, you're, you know. We hear these things, I'm, I'm guessing you, you have. And yet the boldness that Hagar has and the boldness that we should have comes from knowing we have a God who hears us, we have a God who sees us. And his promises can be trusted. Now, I haven't spoken much about abortion yet. Technically, if you're reading the passage closely, this passage has nothing to do with abortion. You may be wondering, why did you choose this? Um, but remember, the question, <coughs> excuse me, the question that we're asking this morning is why? 
Why stand for life? Why stand against abortion? And the true and fullest answer to that question is that we have a God who sees. To be seen by God is to be dignified by God. It's to be found in your utter neediness and helplessness and cared for even in that place. It's to be reminded by him, as we read earlier today, as as Troy read for us in the theme verses, that we are made in his image, that we are known by him, we are valued by him, we are loved by him. Hagar felt this in the wilderness, and it gave her strength to return to Abram, to return to Sarah, even though that was the last thing she would have wanted to do because she was confident in this God who sees. A God who reminds us of our dignity. Now I bring this up, and remember in the beginning I said this is not a self-congratulatory sermon. This is going to hopefully be a sermon that challenges challenges us to think a little bit about are we being faithful in this issue, not just in the way we vote, but in the way that we think and the way that we live. I appreciated what Amber said. We are not called simply to to yell at people on the street corner. We are not called to preach a message of hate. We are not called to yell at people. We are called to love first and foremost. I think this is something, when we think about a God who sees, a God who views us with dignity, that ought to challenge us. Because if we believe that God sees the unborn with dignity, that means that God sees all people with dignity. And that means that we are called to treat all people with dignity. It's not something we get to pick and choose. There are not some people that we get to treat with dignity and some that we choose not to. In fact, if you look throughout Jesus' entire earthly ministry, what you find is that he consistently and constantly went to those who had been treated without dignity by their society, and he restored their dignity to them. We think about the man of the Gerasenes who had lived among the tombs, who had the demon, who had hurt himself, who had um, been controlled by a demon. We think of the woman with a flow of blood, considered unclean, considered impure, Think of the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the lepers, the sick, and the blind. All of the people who Jesus went to and said, your people have seen you and said that you had no dignity, and yet I will come to you and remind you that you are a child of the Most High God, that you are made in his image, and you have dignity. This is something that we all inherit as sinful humans, that we make these distinctions between people who we must see and treat with dignity and people who we don't need to treat with dignity. And this is why we stand against abortion. We have a God who does not draw these distinctions, a God who sees all of his creation, and first and foremost, the crown of his creation in mankind, as valuable, as beautiful, There's a great C.S. Lewis quote that you may have heard, you have probably heard, that says, There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat, but it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit, immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. 
is immortal beings that we care for in the womb. People made in the very image of God, valued by him and dignified by him. And what's more, we can offer that love and dignity to them because as we hear in 1 John 4, we love because he first loved us. To that girl who is struggling with the decision of whether to have an abortion, to that woman who has had an abortion, and there may be some here who have, um, you know, who had it because they couldn't see a way forward without it. This is what we have to offer, not hate, not shame, not a callous heart, not condemnation. What we have to offer is the grace and love and dignity of a God who hears us and who sees us. So how then do we stand for life? How do we witness to the God who sees and hears us, the God who loves us, even in the womb, even when we have nothing to offer him. We treat each other with dignity, and particularly we treat those who we are so tempted not to treat with dignity, with profound dignity. This may sound trite or obvious. It's something we, treat, we teach our children. It's something that we believe. And yet I think never has there been a time more than now in the church when this is less of a popular idea in the way that it actually works out. The first thing that comes to my mind when I think of this is Facebook, right? And, and no, as I preach God's word to you this morning, I'm called to bring not only his comfort, but also his challenge. I'm speaking to this room and not to some vague group of people. Think about social media and the way that we treat each other, the way that we are tempted to say, if that person disagrees with me, not only can I disagree with them, but I can mock them. I can treat them as less of a person, as less human. I can treat their tragedies as glories. I can treat their sadness. I can treat their losses as my joy. I don't have to view them with dignity because they disagree, because they, maybe they have done some terrible things. And there are legitimate disagreements, but the way that we as a church and as a culture have begun to treat each other, to treat those who we disagree with, to treat those on the other side of whatever aisle, does not bear the mark of the God who sees us and the God who loves us, the God who saw an Egyptian servant having no claim to him, having no claim to his love, sinful, I'm sure, broken. The way he came to her and said, I see you and I hear you, calls us. Whatever we think about politics, whatever we think about social issues, to, to treat each other with dignity and love and value. Whether you watch you know, Seth Meyers on the one hand or Sean Hannity on the other, I don't say this, by the way, to, to equate what we do on Facebook with the evil of abortion. They're not the same thing. Don't hear that. But I say this to, to show that it is a root of sin in each of us that we choose who we want to treat with dignity and who we don't. And the way that we convince people of Christ, the way that we convince people to oppose abortion, to treat people all people, unborn people with dignity, is to treat all people with dignity. You may think that that would not work. It is not the strategy that our culture usually chooses. But if you think about what Christians have done, 
throughout the centuries to profoundly change societies. It's not been by the strength of their hate, by their vitriol, by their punchy and crude language. It's been by their love. If you look at the missionary movements, and the orphanages that were set up, the hospitals, right? it's said that, that the Christian church essentially invented the hospital as a way to treat those around them with love and to care for their bodies as they were caring for their souls. As we went to other countries and spread the gospel, we spread not only a message, but we spread a practical and a beautiful vision of what it meant to treat people as those made in the image of God. And this didn't always happen, but in the places where it did, you see the effects of it. I have a good friend who's a friend to many of you, uh, Dustin Messer, who wrote a beautiful article for the Colson Center called Jerks for Jesus, Doing the Lord's Work the World's Way. He's speaking facetiously here, right? he's speaking kind of tongue-in-cheek. He says, how will we ever win the culture war if we don't hit below the belt? The world is fighting dirty, why shouldn't we? The hour is too late for meekness. It's okay to be a jerk if you're a jerk for Jesus. And what we're called to in this morning, as we think about the value of human life, as we think about the dignity of the unborn, is we want to do the Lord's work the Lord's way. To treat people with dignity, to care for them, to love them, and so to preach the gospel to them in our lives as well as in our words. We have a Savior who counted us of such incredible worth when we were utterly without anything to offer him. We had spat in his face in our sin. We had nailed him to the cross, as the hymn says. It was my sins that held him there. He had every reason not to treat us with dignity, and yet he died. He hung there on the cross, suffering for us. He died there. He suffered there for the unborn. He suffered for the sinner. He suffered for the outcasts, for those who were unseen, for those who one person or another thought that they didn't have to value, they didn't have to see, they didn't have to hear. And so we as a people, as a church, as people so beautifully bought by the blood of Christ, we are called to do the same. Now after all that, I do want to say, I hope you will get involved with this issue. Right? It is not enough for us to simply have the right mindset. We are called to work out our salvation, to, to do the things that accord with godliness. I hope, I, I hope to speak to Amber later. I hope you will speak to Amber later. Or in whatever way, whatever organization you want to get involved with, and I hope that we do it out of this sense of love and dignity, having a God who sees and hears. And more than anything, as Amber said, I hope we will pray. We have a God who hears us. Our, our prayers never once have fallen on deaf ears. I pray that we would remember the dignity with which he has first loved us.